Please open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. That's where we are in this small but powerful letter that the Apostle Peter wrote to his disciples. 2 Peter chapter 2 is where we are. We'll be taking the Lord's Supper at the end of the service so you can be preparing your hearts and minds for that as well. Um, and we will dig into the word expecting God to feed us there. So uh, 2 Peter chapter 2 is where we are. Before I read it, I want to make sure we keep in mind the big picture of this letter. In many ways, it's the big picture of the whole Bible and of our entire lives as Christians. It's uh, so that we will stand strong, so that we will be faithful depending on God and what he's done for us in Christ. And so this, uh, this letter that's got a lot of warning in it, it's a warning letter, uh, is, is for the purpose of building our faith, of strengthening us. There is false teaching going on in this church, and as we will see today especially, we started to see it last week, but this week especially, we will see that he is leveling both barrels at false teachers and wanting us to see them for what they are. But please don't miss, in these very hard words, the love that is behind them all. We have the author of this letter, the Apostle Peter, who calls himself a slave of Christ. He's not lording anything over anyone. He comes writing this letter that is very hard and very exhortative and very direct. And you might, it might sound harsh to you, but it's in love that he writes this. He wants them to rest in the glory and sufficiency of Jesus and in the assurance of his coming judgment so that their lives reflect the godliness to which they are called. He wants them to grow in grace in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. These, those he's writing to are those he says are an equal standing with the apostles in the beginning of the letter. Because our standing before God doesn't depend on a list of accomplishments we may or may not have. It all stands on faith, trust in Jesus, who he is, what he did for us. That's how you identify a Christian. Somebody who's waved the white flag at their own sufficiency and trusted Jesus in saving faith, turning from self and sin to Jesus in his sacrifice and righteousness. That's what a Christian is. And so we're, if that's what you've done, you're an equal standing with the apostle Peter and all the apostles, he says. And his goal is multiplying grace in our lives and peace in our lives. That's what he says in verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you, and he's not vague about how you get there, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And then if you skip down in chapter 1 to verse 10, chapter 1 verse 10, you get another good glimpse of his primary goal for us this morning and for his church to whom he's writing 2,000 years ago. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. He doesn't want you to fall. He wants you to stand strong. He wants you to give evidence in your life of your faith in Christ. The legitimacy of it, the authenticity of it, the realness of it. 
And then look the result. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is nothing short of heaven itself that awaits if you practice the things in these books, in, in this letter. And there is nothing short of heaven that you will forfeit if you neglect the teaching of this book. This book is about reaping eternal rewards richly provided for us by Jesus. There's a lot at stake in this letter. A lot at stake. And and we need to heed his words. You you could also look at chapter 3, verse 17, for his primary goal. And it's it's all basically the same goal. Look at chapter 3, verse 17. You, therefore, listen to God as he speaks to us this morning. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand that Jesus is coming back, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity, amen. He wants stability for you. And so, yes, he is saying things, and you will hear things this morning that are very hard teachings. And you need to hear them couched in the love that is heading toward the goal of stability so that you don't fall of dependence on God in Christ for you so that you make it home and hear, well done, good and faithful servant, and reap the eternal rewards that Jesus provides. There's nothing short of heaven at stake here. There's nothing short of hell that we may suffer if we don't listen to the teaching of this book. It couldn't be more serious. And so so let's listen to what we have here for us. We have... The, uh, in Jesus, the more fully confirmed word of God that we find in the scriptures here. And so let's listen to this stern warning from the Apostle Peter this morning. Chapter 2, verse 1. But, anytime you see the word but or also, which is either one could be the English translation, always say, oh, he's continuing a thought, right? Uh, and just because the chapter starts here doesn't mean the thought starts here. He's continuing a thought, and Jackson did a great job last week of helping us understand that what we believe as Christians are not inventions of fanciful minds and creativity. They are realities grounded in history, and as I was listening to the Jackson sermon this week with my daughter Paige as we were driving, because I preached in Fullerton last week, didn't I? No, I, I, I preached preached at a Chinese church. It was amazing. Chinese church. Uh, Mandarin, Cantonese, and English services at this church. It was amazing. But yeah, I was in Torrance last week. Um, so I listened to Jackson's sermon with, with um, my daughter, and I, I kept thinking, oh, Jackson, helping people in our culture understand that our faith is grounded in historical realities that change our lives is really hard to believe in our culture. 
you know, I studied philosophy and history and, and uh, in depth. And there are so many things for the past 300 years that completely undermine the very thought that you could have anything meaningful and life-changing that you can stand on that isn't immediately experienced by you. But that's the fundamental assumption of the Christian faith is that we are depending on the testimony of the apostles and prophets of things that actually happened in history actually are grounded in fact and history like Jesus walking this earth for 33 years, dying on a cross and rising from the dead for us. That's grounded in history. But we tend to think unless I immediately experience it subjectively, personally, then it can't be real, can't be meaningful. It needs to be firsthand. And that's just not an assumption the Bible works with. So we need to develop our assumptions, our presuppositions from the Bible, not on the effects of in the Enlightenment as it's, as it's uh, progressed for the past 300 years. We, we ground our understanding in historical realities. Even if we didn't firsthand experience them through the Spirit's work, we can still have subjective individual experience of those old historical realities that change us forever. That's where we're coming from here. And and that's what he's referring back to, that he saw Jesus walking on the shores of Galilee for three years, and he even saw him transfigured. He saw the glory that had always been there, but had been hidden, veiled in flesh, and he got a glimpse of it on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw these things. He didn't make these things up, and that's what he's being accused of. The apostolic teaching is obviously being uh, refuted as they just made that up. You don't need to worry about the judgment day. That, this is just all fanciful. It, you can just live how you want because judgment day is not coming. Jesus isn't coming back. That's the false teaching at the heart of what's going on here. And so he's writing to refute it. And so that but refers back to last week's passage. Let me find my page. I lost it. I can't talk and do anything else at the same time, so I'll be right back. Hi, here I am. Um, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Judgment day is coming. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows, if all those things, if all those judgments that have come in history, if all those things happened, 
then what are we to conclude? Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lusts of defiling passion and despise authority. Wow, the gloves are off. He is not pulling any punches. He is coming right at these false teachers and their false teaching. And I, I've been so concerned leading up to preaching on this passage that we are so unprepared for this message, for the seriousness of this message, because we are such a trivializing, trifling culture. It's just cool to be ironic and mock anything serious. And this is as serious as it gets. We, we treat coming to church sometimes, some of us, like going to Starbucks. I remember Annie Dillard, I read, she, she wrote in an essay that, that based on what we actually do in church, we should surround the sanctuary with caution tape and hand out hard hats to everybody on the way in as a symbol of how serious all of this is. It, it's not trifling, trivializing things. And we need to be able to have categories for this. And so, so what's, what's going on here? What, what do we need to learn? Well, I've got five questions I want to address. Did I lose my notes? Did they fly out when I wasn't looking? Oh, here they are. Um, that happens to me sometimes. Mo, you look out for me if I lose my notes, right? Thank you. Um, I've got five questions I think this passage is answering, and it's easy to remember. Who, what, who, what, how? <laughs> who, what, who, what, how? That's, that's what this passage is after. Who are these false teachers? What are they teaching? Who is God? Um, what is the result of the false teaching? And how then should we live? How then should we respond? Got it? Who, what, who, what, how? So who are these false teachers? Wow. He unloads in the, his description of these false teachers. Uh, did you hear what he says? Uh, first he says, there have been and there will be false teachers. When he says in verse 1 that false teachers, false prophets also arose among the people. He's talking about the long history of false teachers among the people of God. Throughout the Old Testament, there are false teachers who come along who aren't from God. Their primary problem in their teaching is they say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Don't worry about judgment. You just live however you want. And they're not from God. And they're self-serving in these things. The Spirit of God is not at work in them. And he says there have been false teachers. There will be false teachers. The Old Testament throughout warns of this. And Jesus himself warned of this in Matthew 7.15. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Pay attention. Be on guard, be alert. And so when he says that, I think he's actually quoting Jesus here 
when he says there will be false teachers among you. He's thinking of the teaching of Christ. He's thinking of the teaching of the true prophets in the Old Testament. And he's saying they've always been around, they are around, and they will be around. Just count on it. Just know it will be part of the deal for you. You need to be vigilant. You can never stop being vigilant in rooting out false teaching and teachers. You need to be serious about this. Don't get lazy. Don't become lax. Don't be contaminated by false teaching because it starts slow and it's subtle and it looks good and it gives you a sense of that's what I really need and want, but it'll kill you. That's what he's saying. It leads to your destruction. And Jesus warned us this. I just pulled out in this whole chapter, actually, all the descriptions I could summarize of these false teachers. Listen to this. They're devious. They do this secretly. It's not that they do it in private. They're very public about it. But when he says they do it secretly, they're devious. They're not up front. They're not shooting straight with you. They're not giving you the whole deal, right? They're letting it out a little bit at a time once they convince you of, of one thing. They're not up front. They're devious. They're destructive. They're heretical, they, uh, they're blasphemous, they bring disrepute on the true message. They're greedy, they're exploiting people, they're false, they're destructive, they're deviant, they're selfish, they're greedy, they're sarcastic, cynical, bold, willful, despising authority, given to defiling passions, arrogant, and living like irrational animals who are worthy of condemnation. Whoa! What about love the sinner, hate the sin? What about kindness and tolerance and and giving people the benefit of the doubt? Here's the first thing I want you to notice. He's not just going after false teaching. He's going after false teachers. He wants you to know they're lying to you, and he wants you to know they're liars. This is not this odd, depersonalized concept of sin and error and evil and lies that I think a lot of us have bought into. We so want to uh, have people think we're kind and loving that instead of having kindness and love be truth-telling, we act like truth doesn't really matter and sin and evil aren't really very personal things that come from human hearts. Sin and evil and lies aren't some concept ethereally floating around outside of us. They originate in human hearts. And so it's not just teaching that's false, it's teachers that are false. And we can't be so fearful of appearing judgmental that we won't call out false teaching and those teaching it. This is a tough thing for us to say, no, God says it's the loving thing to rebuke someone. Not just their ideas, someone. And that's what's happening here. He's not just critiquing their ideas. He's not just critiquing their ideas and their teachings. He's critiquing them. It's very personal. And and so he goes after them. And these descriptions are powerful and condemning because they're not from God. They may be self-deceived, but they're not ignorant. They know what they're doing. And he's calling them out for it. They're challenging the authority of the apostles. They're denying a central teaching of Christian doctrine, the second coming of Christ. This isn't some peripheral issues that Christians should legitimately agree to disagree on. This is a central teaching that we then orient our entire lives around, that Jesus is coming back, that there really is a judgment day. The Bible teaches this a lot, and it's supposed to have powerful import in your life. It's supposed to call you to holy living, knowing you answer to God for how you live. 
You're not autonomous. You don't determine right and wrong for yourself. That's been the human problem since the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve says, no, we will determine good and evil for ourselves as they eat from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And that's been our problem ever since. And these teachers are coming along telling the same lie Satan told Adam and Eve in the garden. And that, that's not to be accepted. They may be ignorant, but they know, they, they may be self-deceived, but they're not ignorant. I remember I was in a class in, in seminary where Wayne Grudem was the teacher, and a first-year seminary student, we were talking about the Trinity, and he raised his hand, and he prefaced his, his question, his sort of proposal of how to think about the Trinity. He said, no, I don't, I don't want to be a heretic or anything. And Grudem cut him off and said, no, 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 don't worry about that. He said, you don't know enough to be a heretic. <laughs> it's great. It seemed really offensive at first, but the more we thought about it, it was like, oh, that's right. This doesn't mean we don't ask good questions. It doesn't mean we're not afraid to say things that are wrong. It doesn't mean that as the people of God, we're not working at truth together. But these guys knew better. They knew the truth. They knew what the apostles taught, and they decided to divert from it. They decided to go down an entirely different path and seek to undermine the credibility of the apostolic witness. And so we need to recognize the difference between what's called heresy, coming from people who know better, who are responsible for what they're doing, even though they may be legitimately self-deceived in that, have convinced themselves that this is the right thing. But they start asking questions like, well, did God really say that? Is that really what it means? And the clarity of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture is put aside. And even though many may claim to be Christians, they come from our own midst. That's what Paul warned the Ephesian elders of. He said, there are going to come after my departure fierce wolves that will arise even from your own midst who will tear at the sheep. Beware, know they're coming. This, this is really serious, and that's what he wants us to know. Who, so who are these false teachers? That's your glimpse. Um, and so what are they teaching? So who are the false teachers? Two, what are they teaching? Their own opinions. Not from God, but from themselves. They're teaching peace without judgment. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. I heard a well-known, highly influential Christian leader Asked one time, uh, just last year, he was asked, um, what's the one thing you know? If you had to summarize everything you know, what's the one thing you really know? And he said this, that we're all going to be okay. Oprah loved that answer to her question. We're all going to be Okay, and I just, I stood up when I heard it, and I said, peace, peace when there is no peace. If, if we don't turn from sin and self into God's saving work in Christ, we're not going to be okay. I want to be really clear about that. Peter couldn't be more clear than he is. And I, I want you to realize that their, their teaching led to immorality, and this is always true. This is always the case. Wrong ideas lead to wrong living. The Bible couldn't be more clear about that. These false teachers had lives that showed fruit of immorality grounded in wrong thinking and teaching. Their wrong belief led to wrong behavior and polluted and influenced others. Alexander Nisbet says this, this Scottish pastor, it is not strange to see that the most dangerous heretics have many followers. 
every error being a friend to some lust. It's amazing how our ideas end up invading our lives. They determine how we live. And the idea that there isn't a judgment day, we don't have to answer to anybody but ourselves, will always lead us to immoral living, to self-determined living, to everyone doing what's right in their own eyes and following their base instinct. That's where this will all lead. If you think human beings are just molecules and atoms or objects, then you'll treat them like objects. If you think human beings are made in the image and likeness of God, created by their creator for his glory and have profound dignity and value and respect, you will treat them very differently than if they're just animals or things. We we have a whole different way of thinking, so that means we have a whole different way of living. Did you hear that this denunciation of their teaching is not just theological truth, but moral sin? Over and over again, they're immoral deceivers. Denying the second coming led to immorality. And I think this immorality in the way it's talked about here, and in this way in other contexts in the New Testament, is primarily sexual immorality. Uh, Sexual immorality seems to be the primary error showing up in their lives. Look at verse 7. Uh, referring to the sensual conduct of Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 10 describes the judgment that's coming because of the lust of defiling passions. He says, you've been uh, bought by a master. Same language Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 6 when he says, you're not your own, you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your bodies because there's sexual morality in Corinth. The context in 1 Corinthians and here in 1 and 2 Peter, it leads us to conclude that this, this is an immorality that, yes, has greed in it, self-interest in it, selfishness in it, but it seems that these descriptions are sexual in nature, that, that they, they had a view of sexuality that was out of God's design, not God, the way God wanted it to be. And if you want to think of a way you can be more perceived as backwards and, and messed up and, and puritanical and horrible, it's, it's if you have biblical sexual mores today. There's no way you will be marginalized quicker in just in a basic conversation than saying, yeah, I don't think you should have sex till you're married. What? What planet are you from? That's how my friends talk to me my whole life. What? What are you talking about? It's just absurd. And if, and if you seek to live out of God's design, whether it's premarital sex or in regard to homosexuality or, or uh, pornography or uh, all these things that are being normalized and have become normalized, if you just say, no, I don't think that's God's design. I want to live a pure, holy life regarding my sexuality. You will be perceived as a nutcase who's a problem in society. And that's exactly where they were then. Do you think these problems are new? You think these pressures are new? Oh, we have challenges that things like the internet have brought. It's just so accessible and all around us for sure. But these aren't new challenges. These aren't new problems. This has always been our inclination to go away from God and so away from his pattern for our lives. So who are the teachers? What are they teaching? Who is this God? Who's the God we find in this passage? Well, I hope it's obvious he's the God of truth. 
Uh, he's the God who takes sin and its destructive implications and the false teaching that leads to that very personally and very seriously. God couldn't be more serious about the way he takes sin. And maybe you don't like a serious God. Maybe this really turns you off. Maybe a God who's deadly serious about sin and evil and issues like heaven and hell and righteousness and unrighteousness, maybe this just turns you off. Maybe this is not what you don't like about the God of the Bible. I just want to ask you, do you, care, do, you have, do you care about righteousness? Do you care about justice? I bet you do, especially when something unjust happens to you. Maybe you don't care about it broadly in the culture, even though it's all around us. But do you at least care about making things right? I, I'm, it's amazing how much I care about things being right, and good to me and fair to me. I, 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 all the time, when I drive my car, I almost always pull out of Bible Avenue and wait at that light to take a right turn on red on, on Imperial Highway. And there's nothing I despise more about Southern California then the people typically don't signal. So I see a car come over that rise, you know? You know, if you've been a Biola and Imperial, there's a long way where that car's coming. And I can take a right turn and get to my meeting on time, or I can wait for homeboy to get there and take a right and not signal. I want to get out of the car and choke him. I'm serious. That's how I feel. That's how, like, I, I, I watch this dude come all the way, like 300 yards, right? And then he just takes it right. And I just, can you imagine? That really bothers me. Come on. You just wasted 45 seconds of my life. I'll never get back. That's how seriously I take things being right. Imagine a holy God. Imagine a holy God looking at a creation that's giving him the finger all the time. Imagine almighty, righteous, holy God. Imagine the patience he must have. How trivial are the things I get upset about. And do you think God is passive in the face of injustice and, and evil and sin and offense against him? What kind of world do you want? Do you want a world where God's passive toward sin, ambivalent toward evil and injustice? I don't, deep down, I know you don't want that kind of God. You don't want that kind of world. That'd be an unlivable world. And so we want a God who cares about these things because these things destroy us. And if he loves us, he better care about them. And he does. And he's actively judging these false teachers and this false teaching. This is who he is. And, and notice how personally he takes this and how personally he's involved in this. Sometimes... I hear people describe God's justice as sort of this thing that he's just sadly watching happen, even though he's like, oh, I can't believe they did that. Oh, I wish I didn't put these laws into place so that they just run their course now. I wish I could have taken it all back. No, he's very active. Look at verse 4. He casts them into hell. He commits them to gloomy darkness, these angels that have fallen. He gives these lists of historical examples of his justice being swift and certain. That's the result. God is actively involved in this. He's not just watching it happen. Destruction is not asleep. 
because God never slumbers nor sleeps. He cares that much about justice and, and righting the injustice. And so what's the result of this teaching? As we see, it's swift and certain judgment. There, you know, there's no instruction. There are no commands in this chapter. We're not told what to do once. It's supposed to be obvious when we see the result of wicked living. What we're supposed to do is supposed to be patently obvious when we see the effects of sin in its destroying tendencies. There's a terrifying description of what will happen to those who fall prey to the false teachers in the church here. And whether it's the fallen angels or the unrighteous in Noah's day or the unrighteous in Sodom and Gomorrah, we're supposed to learn from God's consistent, wise, patient wrath and judgment follow the way of godliness because we see the effects of ungodliness and where it ends up. So, who are these false teachers? What are they teaching? Who is God? And what is the result of this false teaching? It is judgment. It's judgment. And we need to flee the wrath to come. And we flee the wrath to come by fleeing to Jesus. So how should we respond? Last question, number five. How should we respond then? We should hate false teaching. We should reject it. We should fight it. We should learn to recognize it. False teaching and error and sin should really bother you. And a lot of people walk around saying, I'm a very tolerant person. And sometimes I'm starting to say, no, you just don't care. You're not patient. You just don't care. You don't care about sin and evil. It's not hard for you to be tolerant or patient. And it's not even patience because you just don't care. You don't care about injustice. You don't care about evil. You don't care about false teaching because you don't think ideas matter. They do matter. And God's people need to be earnest, intense, and committed to this. Like Lot, who in verse 7 was greatly distressed. Did you see that? Greatly distressed by their sensual conduct. Tormented in his righteous soul. Can you relate to Lot or not? Can you relate to Paul when he's at the Areopagus and he's vexed in his soul because of the false idols people are worshiping? Does it bother you? You've just gotten used to it. We can't get used to these things. We need to live in a culture that, that is giving into evil every day. We need to be patient and loving and kind and gracious, but we need to be tormented in our righteous souls. And the Bible's clear. There's a difference. Did you hear how often there's this black and white, there's the righteous and the unrighteous. There's the, the godly and the ungodly. We don't like to talk this way. You know, we're all the same. It's all, no, Christians are people, the Bible says, who've been brought out of darkness and are now children of light, walking in light. There's a radical difference now. Not that feeds pride or self-righteousness at all, because it's all because of Jesus. But most certainly we've recognized, oh, being a Christian isn't just doing a few religious things or saying religious things or wearing certain t-shirts or, or, or putting certain posts on my Facebook. Or, or it's, it's, I'm no longer a child of darkness. I, I deserve nothing but hell, but I'm heading to heaven. I, I now am one of the godly, not because of my godliness originating in myself, but because of God's miraculous work pulling me out of darkness. There's a radical difference between children of light and children of darkness, the righteous and the, the unrighteous, the godly and the ungodly. It's, it's drawing these clear lines here. Let's get rid of the fuzziness. There's a radical calling on the lives of Christians to be radically different than a sinful, ungodly, unrighteous culture. Let's just acknowledge that. 
We so fear appearing like we think we're better than people, we're no different than anybody. Let's change that. Let's listen to this warning this morning. Truth and error, sin and righteousness are really serious things. If sin doesn't bother you, you will never sense your need to be delivered from your sin and you won't love God's justice and you won't run to Jesus. You live in a self-satisfied, self-righteous world. And it takes courage in a day when only heresy, when the only heresy people will admit, many of them in our culture, is that heresy even exists. The only heresy is that there's actually heresy. That there's actually grave wrong and evil. But we need to acknowledge that there is. Richard Baxter said that we are to preach as a dying man to dying men. There's a seriousness to this. It's not glib. It's not trivial. It's as weighty and serious as it can be. And we should strongly denounce both false teachers and teaching and know, love, and defend the truth. And loving God means loving truth and hating false teaching And this is a major job of leaders. This falls to leaders. If you're a grace group leader, if you're a leader in this church in some way, you have a responsibility of knowing truth, discerning error, and protecting the sheep from untruth. And we're not good at it, many of us. We we just aren't discerning because we haven't let the Bible saturate us to the point where we can spot error. These are secretive teachers. They don't say in the introduction of their book, beware, because on page 8, 18 and 55, there is rank heresy that will lead you into grave error if you're not. So pay attention there. No, you need to be able to see it for yourself. And we need to be biblically discerning in this way. And we lead then to faith that sets us free. And belief in error will kill us. It will destroy us. And we are to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jesus says, if you love me, You'll obey my commandments. That's the bottom line in all of this. And so we then, how should we live? The last question, we should live looking forward to Christ's return and his coming judgment, knowing that he has taken the judgment for us. We should live in holy fear and confidence in God's glory displayed in Christ. And we also realize that we need reminders. We need reminders. We're forgetful. And this whole letter's a reminder to stay with what's true and reject what's false. And every day we need reminders. That's why we get up and read our Bibles and we pray and we fellowship with people who remind us. That's why we take the Lord's Supper as we are today. It's, it's the best reminder we have. It's the reminder that God has done it for us in Christ. He has come and he's coming again. And he offered himself for us. That's what the Lord's Supper is. That's that's what we take now, this amazing bread and cup that points us to Jesus, the one who is the truth as well as the way and the life. Jesus is the one who gave himself for us. He's the master who bought us. That's how this passage describes him. He's our master who bought us. And when we realize that we can do nothing to save ourselves, and, and we say, no more of self, and I trust Jesus and what he's done for me, that changes everything. And if you've never done that this morning, oh, I pray, I plead with you that this will be the morning you trust Christ, that, that you turn from your sin and trust Jesus in saving faith. If you are a believer, this table's for you. This table, this offering, our servers will come and one will have bread, one will have the cup, and you'll, you'll take bread and they'll say, this is symbolizing Christ's body 
for you and his blood was shed for you. And we take these symbols of what Jesus did for us, recognizing that it changes everything. So as the body of Christ, we partake of these symbols of the body of Christ. And we realize that because of Jesus, we live a new life now. And he's our master now. And all we are and all we have is under his authority. And we live very differently, seeing truth as what sets us free. And lies and error and sin as what destroys us. Let's pray. Lord, help us as we now partake of the Lord's Supper together to see Jesus more clearly than ever before as the only solution to our sin, the only answer to our greatest questions of life. Jesus in our place. Jesus living and dying and rising for us. Lord, for anyone here who has never trusted Jesus, I pray this would be the morning where they say, I'm done with my own effort, believing lies, and I'm going to trust Jesus who is the truth. Lord, help us now as we partake to do it with sober hearts and grateful hearts. Give us the sober joy we should have when we partake of this amazing meal together. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.